still getting kind of situated, and then we'll we'll get into our material. Gail, do you mind starting us off? Gail. Gail. Judy. Judy. Zan. Zan. Bogar. Ben. Ben. Vera. Tonye. Tonye. Tonye, welcome. Tonye. Kate. Kate. Yeah. Courtney. Courtney. Susie. Susie. Yeah. Say it again. Bela. Bela. Thank you. Sunny, yeah, and Jane, Jane, yeah, and I'm Greta. Um, so, uh, if you're, if, if this is your first time, the way that we're going to do this class, we're going to start off with some survey questions. We'll do these anonymous surveys. Just take one of the pens that we've passed out. Don't put your name on this. You're just going to make an X or a check um, in one of the squares that indicates your opinion. Then we're going to collect them all. We will repass them out. So you will have somebody's sheet in the class. Um, and we're later in the class, we're going to divide ourselves um, on different sides of the room to indicate our opinions. Okay? So you will know what the rough opinions and consensus in the room is, but your opinion will be anonymous. So we are now in the final book uh, of these four books that are collected in Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. We just finished up um, a book about the virtues, the Christian virtues, and now the final book gets into theology um, and into the Trinity and stuff. So it's interesting, some interesting material that we're getting into. So um, we are going to go ahead and do our agreement as usual. Uh-oh, is this not going to work? I wonder if this is not going to work. Okay, so um, let's. we're going to be discussing at the end of the class, so we always do this. Uh, we commit to understand that people will have different opinions and respect them. Share your opinion and ideas. It's not going to work as a discussion if we all stay silent, so please commit to share your opinion and ideas. But also allow others to share their opinions and ideas. Be mindful of how much airtime you're, you're sharing. If you're somebody that likes to speak up, maybe just be self-aware there. Um, respect the pause. If there's some dead space where people just need to think, we're going to be okay with that. Um, bottom line, engage respectfully. Do we all agree to do that? Yes. Yes. Great. Okay. Um, okay. So statement one, this is where you're going to indicate your agreement or disagreement. Theology is practical and useful. Feel free to answer honestly. No one will know what you say. You can be honest. Theology is practical and useful. Okay, statement two. Jesus is God's son, and born-again believers are God's children. That means we are God's begotten children, like Jesus. not a test. You will not be held accountable to your answers. Okay, statement three. The Christian Trinity describes a God which is not impersonal, but super personal. Something more than a person which relates to us in multiple ways. Okay, statement four, God is infinite and therefore outside the boundaries of time. Okay, statement five, I suspect God is too busy to listen to every one of my prayers. I encourage you to answer this on an emotional level, not necessarily a cognitive level. A lot of us know the right answer, but... Consider how you actually function. Okay. 
Okay, statement six. God is the Father and Jesus is the Son. That means God must have come first. We got two more today. Uh, statement seven. God is love. Therefore, love is God. Okay, last one. Uh, the purpose of becoming a Christian is to become ever more like Christ. That is the purpose of becoming a Christian. Okay, since you're done, you can collect your cards in a row. I will gather them, or Sunny will gather them if you don't mind. Thanks, Sunny. Okay, so this was where we left off last time. Last time we talked about charity and hope and then two different kinds of faith. And the faith chapter ended with the vital moment. He talked about all of this trying, all of our moral efforts to be good, to live in a way that is moral and upright. All of them ultimately leave us to lead us up to the vital moment at which we turn to God and say, you must do this. I can't. I talked about making a New Year's resolution to work on goodness um, last week and talked about how I had really worked hard on practicing one moral virtue every day, failed ethically. Like the, it seemed like the more earnest I was in my attempts to try, the more ethically I failed. And it was, it was really embarrassing. But it, it made me realize there is, no, there is no real goodness in me. It has to be God. Like, I can try to focus on goodness, but really all I can do is focus on God's goodness and just be thankful. And C.S. Lewis um, says, it's the change from being confident about our own efforts to the state in which we despair of doing anything for ourselves, and we just say, God, you have to do this. We believe it. We put all our trust in Christ, okay? And this is the trust that we have, that he's somehow actually going to share with us his own perfect obedience. He can and will make us more like himself. He will make us children of God. We're going to talk about that today. And that all we, all we have done and can do is, is actually nothing, okay? Um, now, that doesn't mean we stop trying to live a righteous life, but it does mean we try in a new way, a less worried way. After I failed in my New Year's resolution to be good, I realized, like, man, like really, make, mainly what God asks of me is that I just be mindful of him and that I'm thankful. What did it make? Like, that's so easy. Like, what a, what a relief that that is all he asks of me, that I just live in gratitude to him, okay? So, um, and he says there's this, there's this crazy verse that kind of indicates our own effort and God's partnership together. That we work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, so we really are doing what we can to give God our best efforts. But, but at the same time, we recognize it's God that works in us the whole time. It's this, it's this, hard, to find, it's this hard to define conundrum. Okay, so that's where we left off. So now we're into book four, which he calls Beyond Personality or First Steps in the Doctrine of the Trinity. I know what you're thinking. That sounds boring, okay? <laughs> so, and he, he addresses that fact right off the bat. He says, now a lot of people don't want to deal with theology, okay? He says, um, I remember once I'd been giving a talk to a, the RAF, okay, the British soldiers in, in World War II, and an old, hard-bitten officer got up and said, I've no use for all that stuff. But mind you, I'm a religious man too. I know there's a God. I felt him. Out alone in the desert at night. The tremendous mystery. That's why I don't believe all your neat little dogmas and formulas about him. To anyone who's met the real thing, they all seem so petty and pedantic and unreal. Okay? There are a lot of people who would say, I'm not a religious person, but I am very spiritual. Okay? They're getting at this idea okay, that there is something that, is, that feels more meaningful, more exciting about experientially feeling God. Okay? And he says it's kind of like being at the beach and being like, it is so much better to be at the beach and take in the sound of the, of the, sh of the waves and, and the smell of the sea spray. That is meaningful. And he says, okay, yes. But you're never going to cross the ocean unless you have a map, right? Okay? He says, so that's what theology is. It's what enables you to go anywhere with your beliefs, okay? So um, he says, um, if he is, if, if a person takes, takes this map, they're going to be turning from something real, yes, to something less real, 
The map is admittedly only colored paper, but it's based on what hundreds and thousands of people have found out by sailing the real ocean. Okay? In that way, the map has behind it masses of experience, just as real as the one you could have from the beach, only while yours would be a single glimpse, the map fits all those different experiences together. In the second place, if you want to go anywhere, the map is absolutely necessary. Okay? So he says that's what theology is. Okay? It's the collection of all the best arguments and the best conclusions, and it's what is actually going to take you somewhere. Okay? So, um, but, uh, yes, just Sunny. for a moment. Yes. When he talks like that, he talks about theology is the map, but then there's different theologies. That's what true. about the Buddhist? What about the, the yeah. AA? The, those other theologies Theology, out there. Like, yeah. So at this point in the book, you remember that C.S. Lewis began with the universal human experience. Okay? And, then he, and then he led us kind of more down the funnel to, um, to the belief that God is a person. And then he led us more down the funnel to, to recognizing that Jesus Christ is God. So now he's speaking exclusively about Christian theology. Okay? And remember, C.S. Lewis did not set out to discuss the Presbyterian theology or the Baptist theology. Okay? In, in this book, just Christianity, mere Christianity. He's talking about this is what all Christians can agree on, okay? He doesn't have time to talk about all the different theologies. He's saying this is what Christians believe. That's what he was asked to defend. And this is what all Christians can agree on, okay? Um, so um, he says in that way theology is practical, okay? Now he says that we like the idea of the vague religion. I'm not, a, I'm not, a, I'm not, and even, you know, he's talking in the 1940s. Now people don't even like the word religion because there's so many negative associations. They would just say, I'm spiritual. And he says, a vague spirituality, if you will, all about feeling God and nature, sorry, that's a typo, in nature and so on, is very attractive. It's all thrills and no work, okay? There's no accountability, okay? It's you, you feel it when you're, when you're in need of comfort or in need of a thrill, um, but you're not, you're not held accountable to it, okay? There's no work there. But you will not get to Newfoundland by studying the Atlantic that way, and you will not get eternal life by simply feeling the presence of God in flowers or music, okay? You just won't. Um, he says, if you don't listen to theology, you'll still have lots of ideas about God, but you will have a lot of wrong ones. Bad, muddled, out-of-date ideas. Okay, I'll give you some examples. Um, all good people go to heaven. Okay, that's bad theology. First of all, who's really good? Okay, and second of all, if, if everybody goes to heaven, then there's, then there's no incentive to ever get to know Christ or to ever acknowledge that you are a sinner. Okay, so that's, that has major practical implications. And yet, that is a, that is a theology that many people accept okay and live according to um god really only cares about your works okay uh, a lot of people that have grown up in in confused theology oh god doesn't care about my heart he doesn't care about my soul all he cares about is what i do that puts all the pressure on you and it takes all the focus away from christ okay it was christ's obedience that atones for our disobedience, right? So thus, if you're living according to this idea, you're exhausted. You feel guilt constantly, okay? Um, if you follow all of God's rules, he will bless you and cause you to prosper. This is an idea that is pretty widely accepted. It's the prosperity gospel. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that's bad theology, okay? Because what happens when tragedy occurs? Does that mean that you have failed God? Does that mean that you are, are cursed by God? Does that mean you weren't trying hard enough? Okay, these are, these are dangerous principles. If you don't have sound theology, you're going to roll with those and, and get pretty hurt along the way, okay? Um, he says one of, the, one of the most common um, bits of bad theology out there is this idea that, oh, well, Jesus was a great moral teacher. I love the guy. Um, the world would be better if we all took his advice. And he said, well, now that's done, okay? Since when have we been good at taking our leader's advice, okay? We're pretty awful at taking good advice. And he says, but it also means that you're not giving Christ his due, okay? As soon as you look at any real Christian writings, they're talking about something quite different from this popular religion. They say Christ is the son of God, whatever that means. They say that those who give him their confidence can also become sons of God, children of God, whatever that means. They say that his death saved us from our sins. 
whatever that means, okay? C.S. Lewis is gonna try to explain what all those things mean, okay? So he says, let's get into one of, the, one of the fundamental tenets of Christian theology, this idea that we can somehow become children of God, okay? Now he says, now what's that about? Okay, so he says, so let's talk about the difference between making something and begetting something, this old school word, begetting, okay? He says, um, the Son of God is begotten, not created, okay? So he says, we beget something of the same kind as ourselves. Humans beget humans, beavers beget beavers, and so on, okay? So if God begets a son, that son is of the same substance as ourselves. He said, we make things unlike ourselves, okay? Beavers make a dam, okay? I might make a, an art piece, a portrait or a statue, but that's gonna be a, a substance different than myself, okay? So he says, now, human beings were made by God, they were created by God, okay? But there is only one begotten son, which is Jesus, okay? But here is something kind of amazing about what Christians believe. He says, now there are two kinds of life, okay? Bios refers to biological life, it comes to us through nature. As long as you have a beating heart and you go on living, okay, you have biological life, okay? Um, but like all things in nature, it tends to run toward decay, okay? Everything that is in this natural world ages and then eventually it dies, okay? Now, Zoe refers to spiritual life. It comes from God and it lasts for eternity, okay? So he says, when um, what man in his natural condition has not got is spiritual life, the higher and different sort of life that exists in God, okay? So he says, um, bios has a shadowy or symbolic resemblance to zoe, which is this word for spiritual life, but only the sort of resemblance there is between a photo and a place, or a statue and a man. A man who changed from having bios to Zoe would have gone through as big of a change as a statue, which changed from being a carved puppet to being a real man, okay? This is Pinocchio, for those of you who need a reminder about Pinocchio, okay? Um, and I love this. That is precisely what Christianity is about. This world is a great sculptor's shop. We are the statues, and there is a rumor going around the shop that some of us one day are going to come to life, okay? And so that is what taking Christ's life into us accomplishes this dramatic transformation, okay? So now we get into chapter two, the three personal God, okay? So he says a good many people nowadays say, I believe in a God, but not in a personal God, okay? We hear that, again, this is something that I think we still hear a lot. People say like, I believe that God is out there, but I don't like have a relationship with him. That seems too, you know, kind of loosey-goosey, like modern day, I'm not into that, okay? Um, they feel that the mysterious something which is behind all other things must be more uh, than a person. Now, Christian, Christians quite agree, but Christians are the only people who offer any idea of what a being that is beyond personality could be like. All the other people, they say, God is beyond personality, okay? He's, he's, he's too big. I'm not going to try to imagine what that kind of God is like. And he says, no, no, no. They, those people are, are all actually thinking of him as something impersonal, something less than personal, if you are looking for something super personal, something more than a person, then it's not a question of choosing between the Christian idea and the other ideas. The Christian idea of a super personal God is the only faith that believes in a God that is super personal rather than impersonal, okay? So he says, um, now this is, um, the Trinity is a hard concept, right? Can we all, like how many of you have struggled with the concept of the Trinity? Okay, those of you who aren't raising your hands, just don't want to raise your hands. You're being lazy. <laughs> yeah, I, think we've, I think this is a very challenging concept. Okay? Um, he, he has a great analogy. He says, think of the three dimensions, okay? Uh, in one dimension, you've got one plane, right? You, you're able to produce a line. In the second dimension, you can make a shape. You have two dimensions. You have the vertical and the horizontal. In the third dimension, you have six squares that form one shape, one one object, one cube, okay? So he says, 
Um, have you guys ever seen uh, in oh, what's the the movie about the emotions? Um, Inside Out. Inside Out. There's this hilarious scene in Inside Out where these three-dimensional like cartoons, I guess, fall into this like dimension-disrupting continuum, and they and they they go it's like they fall into they become cubist, and then they become these like two two D shapes, like trying to stumble through this thing, and then they flop down, and all they are is lines. Okay. So the idea is that is that if you're living in a one-dimensional world, you can't possibly imagine what's going on in the three-dimensional world. Okay. And so. Um, he says, as you advance to more real and complicated levels, you're able to produce new combinations in ways you couldn't imagine if you only knew the simpler levels. Okay? So, uh, in God's dimension, you find a being who is three persons while remaining one being, just as a cube is six squares while remaining one cube. Okay? So, he says, now, um, once again, the theology is practical, so let's think about how this works when we're praying. Okay? Um, if we can't imagine a three-personal being, what's the good of even talking about him? And he's like, let's, let's, let's think about this. Okay. So let's say you're, you're sitting down to pray. Okay. Well, you're praying to God. Um, God, the Holy Spirit, is the one prompting you to pray, helping you to pray, working within you as you pray. Jesus is standing beside you, helping you know how to do it. Okay. Comforting you and, and showing you the way, showing how to talk with God. Okay, um, he says, so, um, yeah, I'm going to read what he says, it's better. An ordinary simple Christian kneels down and says prayers. He's trying to get in touch with God the Father. But if he's a Christian, he knows that what is prompting him to pray is also God the Holy Spirit, God inside him. But he also knows that all of his real knowledge of God comes through Christ, the man who was God, that Christ is standing beside him, helping him to pray, praying for him. Okay, you see what is happening. God is the thing to which he is praying, the goal he is trying to reach. God is also the thing inside him which is pushing him on, the motive power. And God is also the road or bridge along which he is being pushed to that goal. So that the whole threefold life of the three personal being is actually going on in that ordinary little bedroom where an ordinary man is saying his prayers. That man is being caught up into the higher kinds of life, what I called zoe, or spiritual life. He's being pulled into God, by God, while still remaining himself. Okay? Kind of cool. Okay, so then I'm going to skip the rest of this chapter. It's interesting, especially if you are into the free will predestination question. Read it yourself. Okay, time and beyond time. So, um, I, another, another bit of bad theology, which sometimes trips us up. I can believe in God all right, but what I can't swallow is the idea of him attending to several hundred million human beings who are all addressing him at the same moment. Okay? Like this. Yes, this is God. Can you hold? Yes, this is God. Can you hold? Yes, this is God. Um, I've had friends, mature Christians, who are like, I, I don't want to pray to God about my parking space. I feel guilty about that. God doesn't need to hear my prayers about a parking space. Okay? Um, that's not, that's not true. God has, he is infinite. He is not in time. He is outside of time. He has, he has all of eternity to engage your prayers. I love this too because sometimes I have forgotten to pray for someone and I know that like the interview that they had asked for prayer for has already happened and I'll still, I'll still pray for them. God knew my prayer was coming. Like he, he, he counts it, right? He's, he's outside of time. So, um, C.S. Lewis says, every moment from the beginning of the world is always the present for him. Okay, do you remember early in, our, in, in this class, we t- I talked about the snow globe, how, how there's kind of a little world that exists within this snow globe. We are outside the snow globe in the same way our world has all these physical rules, all the rules of physics, everything that is kind of contained, that our, the rules that our world runs by. God is outside of all of that. Okay? He is infinite. That means that every moment from the beginning of the world is always the present for him. He has all eternity in which to listen to this split second of prayer put up by a pilot as his plane crashes down in flames. Okay, for C.S. Lewis's listening audience, they probably knew someone like that or knew of someone like that. Okay, God hears our prayers. He says, "There's um, you can think of this as somebody writing a novel." Okay. Now, within the novel, Mary's life goes on according to the time span that is created by the novelist. But when the novelist is writing the book, okay, he might start a scene with Mary in it, 
and then walk away, get his coffee, get some scones, go for a walk. He's still thinking about Mary. And then he might come back later and come back to her story. It's always, for her, it's always now. Okay? It's always, I mean, she's within her, her time frame. But the novelist is outside the time frame of, of the book. Okay? Um, that means he has infinite attention to spare for each one of us. I, I know a friend who um, was trying to train herself in the habit of prayer. And so she was talking to God about everything, like, F, like, like stupid stuff. She went to her closet and she was like, well, God, what do you want me to wear today? And she, she told me, she's like, no, I don't think that God really cared that much about what I was going to wear. But I just wanted to train myself in the habit of talking to him. And my attention was caught by a purple shirt. And I was like, all right, God, I'm going to wear that purple shirt. Put my attention on that shirt. I'm wear the shirt. So she put on the shirt. And she ended up, somebody came up to her on her college campus that day and was like, what does your shirt mean? And it, it, it led into this conversation about spirituality. And I think she ended up praying with the person. So, I mean, it's like there is nothing so small or inconsequential that we can't bring it to God. Okay? He wants, he wants everything. Um, we ask, uh, now this, this might trouble us when we talk about Jesus. Okay? Um, I'm going to get into his, his words again because he explains this better than I could paraphrase. Okay? So, um, uh, so, before I became a Christian, one of my objections was as follows. Christian said that the eternal God, who is everywhere and keeps the whole universe going, once became a human being. Well then, said I, how did the whole universe keep going while he was a baby? Or while he was asleep? How could he at the same time be God, who knows everything, and also a man asking his disciples, who touched me? Right? How, could, how, how, how does that make sense? You will notice that the sting lay in the time words, while he was a baby. How could he at the same time? In other words, I was assuming that Christ's life as God was in time and that his life as the man Jesus in Palestine was a shorter period taken out of that time, just as my service in the army was a shorter period taken out of my total life. That's how most of us probably think about it. We picture God living through a period where his human life was still in the future, then coming to a period where it was present, then going on to a period where he could look back on it as something in the past. But probably these ideas corresponded nothing in the actual facts. You can't fit Christ's earthly life in Palestine into any time relations with his life as God beyond all space and time. Okay? He says God has no history. The human life in God is, from our point of view, a particular period in the history of our world, from the year AD 1 until the crucifixion. We therefore imagine it was also a period in the history of God's own life. God has no history. Okay? He is beyond time. That means that Jesus in this temporal sphere, okay, was, there was, God is still infinite because he is beyond time, okay? This is a hard concept to grasp, but they are, they are, they are one and the same. In fact, I kind of wonder if maybe one of the reasons why God turned his face away from Jesus at the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is because at some point that infinite aspect of Jesus had to be turned off for him to fully die. God had to sever that connection entirely. Now, this is my own idea, so that's not... Maybe that's bad theology. I don't know. I'll tell you later. <laughs> okay, but um, this also kind of gets into these questions that we've talked before of free will and predestination, okay? He says, um, you know, what, how does... How, suppose that, that God is outside and above the timeline. In that case, what we call tomorrow is visible to him in just the same way as what we call today. All the days are now for him. He does not remember you doing things yesterday. He simply sees you doing them. Because you have, you, though you have lost yesterday, he has not. He does not foresee you doing something tomorrow. He simply sees you doing them. Because though tomorrow is not yet there for him, for you, it is for him. Okay? In a sense, he doesn't know your action till you have done it. But the moment at which you have done it is already now for him. Okay? I think that's a helpful way of understanding the free will and predestination. Is God moving me like a puppet through, through the world? No, no, no. He, he is outside of time. He knows everything that you will do. Okay? So these verses that talk about God, God foreknew me, he called me, he predestined me, okay? we tend to think of that as like a series of steps. All those steps are now for God. 
Okay. Now, C.S. Lewis does say, if this idea is troubling you or confusing to you, just throw it out. Okay. Don't even worry about it. So let's move on. Okay. So um, final chapter, good infection. Um, okay. So now um, he says, I want you to think of two books. Okay. Um, two books stacked on each other. Okay, let's call the underneath book, book A, and the top one B. The position of A is causing the position of B. Yes? Okay. Um, so, he says, now let's, let us imagine, okay, this couldn't happen in real life, but we're going to pretend. Let's imagine that both books have been in that position forever and ever. <laughs> These are eternal books. They have always been in that position. Okay? In that case, B's position would have always been resulting from A's position, but all the same, A's position would not have existed before B's position. Got it? Okay? They never, neither of them were ever created. They have no point at which they began. They always existed, and they always happened to be in this shape. Okay? So he says, that's kind of what God and Jesus are like. Okay? He says, the sun exists um, no, that's a typo. That should be the, uh, yeah, that's a typo. It's a, it should be, the Son exists because the Father exists, but there never was a time before the Father produced the Son. Okay, sorry, that's kind of an egregious typo. Is it really? <laughs> um, I did this late last night. So, um, so he says that Jesus, uh, I, I like this, we must think of the Son always, so to speak, streaming forth from the Father, like light from a lamp, or heat from a fire, or thoughts from a mind. He is the self-expression of the Father, what the Father has to say. Jesus is the Word of God. And there was never a time when he was not saying it. Okay? We, say, we, we read in Scripture that, that Jesus spoke the world into existence. He was there at the world's beginning. He has always been there with God. Neither of them had a beginning. Okay? They have always existed. They are the only thing in a finite universe that is infinite. Okay? That could have always then existed. Why, then why, God, why did God make him born out of Mary? Well, it ever always existed. Like, why was he born? Why was he born? I mean, that was like the life of Jesus is for us. Yeah. I mean, he came to earth to show us how to live, to live a perfect life, to take him to, to become the sacrifice for our sins, to die on the cross, to defeat death and rise again. And that gets into a lot of Old Testament theology of why the need was there in the first place to atone for our sins. But, I mean, the answer to that, in a nutshell, is because of his profound love for us. But he had a beginning then. But, so Jesus was born into, into our finite world. That's true. But Jesus, as a person, is infinite. He is God. He has always existed outside of time. He entered in, okay? Almost like you can think of, imagine the sun, Okay, stream, and, then, and then imagine that a smaller light streams forth out of that sun. And then imagine that there's all of us in the world, and we open the door, and the light enters in and illuminates this room for a time. Okay? And then, and then when Jesus died, it was like the door was shut, and the world was literally plunged back into darkness. And yet then he rises again, and now the door is permanently open. And light continues to infuse our world. Okay, so Jesus entered in, but he as as in he is in nature God, which means he also always existed. Okay, yeah, Pauline. Uh, since we are sinners, we needed someone to redeem us. We could not go to heaven without a sacrifice, mm -hmm. and so he came to earth as a person who was never a person before. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> there are all of these sneaky mentions in the Old Testament okay. of, of a God figure. It might be just yeah. in order for us to understand. It's hard to know. Okay. Yeah. That's, um, so he became a person so yeah. that he could take our place. Yes. Yeah. Nothing else would do. Yeah. Yeah. Ben. You know, uh, the beginning of our time together, the point was made that theology is practical, and I really see that in this particular case because. 
in some Christian circles uh, today, there's uh, a real pushback against the whole idea of atonement. Mm. It sounds like cosmic child abuse. Yeah. Like a father subjecting his innocent child to torture. Yes. And death and hell and all that stuff. But in order to really sort of make that point, you have to accentuate the separation between God's father and son. Yeah. And what this is saying is that they're of the same substance. Yeah. And so another way to understand the atonement is that this is actually God laying down his own life. Oh, yeah. And that it, it's exactly what it is. Yeah. And I think the Gospels, I mean, I, you know, a couple years ago, there were several of us that preached during Lent. And, and, and the sermon, like one of the, one of the pieces of the sermon that really stuck with me um, that I preached was how intentional the Gospel of John shows that Jesus had total power in his crucifixion. That there's so much emphasis in the fact that he laid down his own life of his own will. Um, that, you know, even in his final moments, Father God, I submit to you my spirit, okay? He is the one that lays his own life down. He wasn't stuck on the cross by some angry father. I totally agree about the importance of that point. Thank you. Okay, so, um, so he says, this is wonderful, okay? He says, um, we, the most important thing to know is that it's a relationship of love. The father delights in his son. The son looks up to his father, okay? It is this relationship of love that is the foundation for any kind of love the rest of us ever learn or participate in. And he says, in fact... Um, the words God is love uh, have no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Love is something that one person has for another person. If God was a single person, then before the world was made, he was not love. Okay? Of course, what these people mean when they say God is love is often something quite different. They really mean love is God. Okay? What a nice sounding idea. Okay? Whatever you love, worship that, that is good. Whatever you love is good. Even if you're cheating on your spouse to participate in this love, that's good. Okay? Mm-mm. Now remember how C.S. Lewis says, for any happiness, for any life that is, that is really happy, quite a lot of self-denial is required. Okay? This, is, this gets into the sermon this morning, right? We promise, we make these promises and these commitments in certain contexts so that we can experience the abundance of life in those contexts. This gets really confusing. Love itself is not God, okay? But God is love, and he shows us the proper way to love, okay? Um, and he says the union between the Father and the Son is such a, a live, concrete thing that this union itself is also a person, okay? Um, he says that... Um, uh, okay, he says, you know that among human beings, when they get together in a family or a club or a trade union, people talk about the spirit of that family or that club or that trade union. They talk about its spirit because the individual members, when they're together, do kind of have this particular way of talking and behaving, which they wouldn't have if they were apart. It's as if a sort of communal personality has come into existence, okay? I remember a guy telling me once, um, he was telling me a story of addiction, and he said that, that once he was in this really like, you know, icky hotel room, and I think they, they offered him some sort, I think they offered him heroin, and he, like, and he was so close to doing it that he sensed that, he said that it felt like there was this palpable evil in the room, and the guys' eyes were, like, completely, you know, their pupils were completely blown up, and so they just had these, these black eyes, and he just said, I just had to get out of there, okay? There is a palpable spirit, and in the same token, when we are among people that are life-giving people, Okay, that is an energizing scenario to be in. Okay, I remember one person describing somebody else by saying, like, man, he changes the temperature of the room. Like, he is such, he is, he is powerful moods. He changes the temperature of the room. That's the kind of spirit that, that the Holy Spirit actually embodies in a much fuller, fuller sense. Okay? So, he says, now how do we experience God being love? He says, the Father is something out there in front of you. The Son is standing at your side, helping you to pray, trying to turn you into another child of God. And the third person is something inside of you or behind you, pushing you on. Okay, that's how we experience the love of God. And there's this wonderful quote, good things as well as bad are caught by a kind of infection. Okay, we become molded by our influences. Right? If we're watching a particular show, start using the lingo of the show, 
Jeff and I got really into Breaking Bad for a while, which is kind of a terrible show. It's really well done, but it's dark. And we sometimes could only watch like an episode, like we couldn't ever watch two episodes in a row. We couldn't binge it because we would just be like, afterward we'd, we'd be like fighting with each other and we'd be super depressed, okay? Because we were exposing ourselves to dark influences, right? But um, by the same token, if we, are, if we are around these influences that pour into us, that fill us up, we catch this good infection. He says, if you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing which has them. Okay? Um, he says, this isn't just a prize that God hands out to anyone. It's a fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. Okay? Once a man is united to God, how could he not live forever? Once a man is separated from God, what can he do but wither and die? So, Lewis ends this chapter by saying, oh, that's unfortunate. What's happening there? <laughs> there we go. Okay. Uh, okay, so he says that's the offer of Christianity. If we let God have his way, we will come to share in the life of Christ. Um, if we do, we shall then be sharing a life which was begotten, not made. Our statues wake up and begin to move around, which has always existed and always will exist. Our souls are transformed into something which lives in eternity with God, which has that same infinite presence. Eve, and then he says every Christian is to become a little Christ. We're supposed to, we, we get to enter into all these amazing powers and, and capabilities of Christ. And by the way, the whole purpose of, be Christian, of becoming a Christian is simply nothing less. Okay? And that's why we're going to get into a chapter later on. That's, is Christianity hard or easy? Because this looks like a tough, a tough road, but it's also an amazing road. Okay? okay, so we've got 20 minutes for discussion. Four chapters and 20 minutes for discussion. <laughs> Feeling pretty proud of myself. Okay, and we are going to get back to statement one. Okay, so you're going to get some sort of marching orders with your card. Okay, this side by the windows, by the stained glass, this is agree. This side by the doors is disagree. Did we lose one? Missing one. No, because I, I hated it. Oh, you came away. Oh. Okay. Um, Kathy, what do you think of, um, as you're comfortable, kind of moving according to what you think as the questions come up, and we let Sunny have your, have your um, thing. Okay. Thank you, Kathy. Uh, okay. Statement one, theology is practical and useful. Do you agree or disagree? Agree. Agree is over here. Yep. Uh, oh, no, no, just to, Yeah, you just move this out. You come back. Agree is over here. Um, okay. We are mostly... Oh, are we really in universal agreement on this? I sort of hate when we all agree. <laughs> um, okay, well... Good job, you faithful church-going Presbyterians. <laughs> um, okay. I know. I bless you. I know. It's true. I'm totally preaching to the choir on this one. Okay. Um, why would someone agree? Why would someone disagree? Are you actually sitting over there? You just want the room. You're ready? Awesome. Okay. Thank you. Bless you. Okay. Uh, Sunny, and then we'll let Dan speak for the devil's advocate position. Yeah. Well, I'm a little bit there too because I know there's one like in the middle, and that whoever has that didn't sit over there <laughs> because it's in the middle. Okay. Okay. <laughs> because that was me. Yeah. I was going like back and forth. Yeah. Um, it's like theology because it's so. Um, it's the study of something that is not universal, not necessarily universal, because yeah. it can have different kinds of theologies, yeah. and then you get pulled into different directions, yeah. and, and then it's becoming not practical and useful. I mean, even in the Christian theology, yeah. 
there is so many different ways of looking at things and doing things and people fighting against each yes. other yeah. because of that. And yeah. so in that terms, it's not. Yes, okay. Exactly. Yeah, we can, get, um, we can get hung up on um, what some people call the non-essentials. Yeah. What is that phrase? There's a great phrase that's like in, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, charity, or something like that. So, um, so that is this, this great exhortation to, to Christian denominations, which we do not always follow, which is the idea that, hey, on the stuff that we agree on, we hold fast to that, okay? And we are unified in that. You would think that atonement is one of those essentials. It's unfortunate that even the atonement has become controversial. But the idea that, the, that in, in those essentials, we are unified. In the non-essentials... Okay, a, a one that Jeff and I have worked through a lot with different denominations and different churches is women in leadership. In non, that's considered a non-essential. We give charity. Okay, we give each other the benefit of the doubt that we're doing the best we can to make the most sensible conclusion, but we're also going to be charitable in saying you're not. You know, we're we're not going to say you're wrong and I scorn you. We're going to say, you know, I trust that you have done your best to arrive at the at the best. Okay, why, why do you agree with theology is practical and useful? How would someone agree with this? Yes, Taylor. Uh, when I was in college, actually in graduate school, I was involved in a class where we used a text that said, that raised the question, do we have a theology? Do we, do we really believe any particular theology? Okay. And the basis of the book was that we live what we believe to be what we what we do as we live is express our theology. Yeah. And it may have very little relation to what you know the reformers believed or what we're offered yeah. in in scripture. Yeah. It's what we express as our beliefs. That's right. Our lives. That's absolutely right, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's similar to a worldview, in a sense, right? Like, so our theology informs how we live our life. Um, when, I, when I still operated according to the theology uh, that God was really concerned about what I should or shouldn't do and that I could keep myself safe and secure and blessed by God if I just followed all the rules, I was, I was exhausted and stressed out. I, had a, I mean, I, I lived with fear all the time. When, I, when, I, when my theology was corrected, thank God, and I began living into a theology of grace um, where, where Jesus is my companion, no matter what happens, there was freedom, not, no longer fear. So our theology does dictate how we live, and therefore, even if we don't like, you know, even if we don't want to get into these creeds and... You know, the original languages and stuff like that. I mean, sure, I mean, it sounds boring. But, but if we convince ourselves that we're not operating with the theology, we're kidding ourselves. Dan, go ahead and say your contrary opinion. Or agree with it. <laughs> say it say if you want. If, if I'm allowed to cross streams into screw tape letters, like, yeah. like, I, I think that theology can, it, obviously it's practical and useful, but I think there can be a distraction to it okay. that takes away from some of the core stuff. Okay. I think uh, that we can use it to kind of get us, you know, arguing yeah. about other things, right? Back in your concept of charity and the lack yeah. of unity and things like that, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's practically useful, but we have to be careful to be charitable. Yeah. Not, yeah. Not let it distract us from the core stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, during Jeff's sermon this morning, when he was talking about loving your enemies, I kind of thought about the popular opinion of Christians in today's culture. I don't think our reputation is that of loving our enemies. Mm-hmm. I think we're actually really good at projecting messages of hate. Um, and maybe it's because we've gotten really hung up on either bad theology or maybe true theology, but we are wielding it in an incredibly violent and harsh way. Um, yeah, Jeff, I mean, his message was about inner healing, but so much of those messages also have to do with our light like how we how we how we preach Christ to the world and if we are so hung up on these theological minutiae um, and not on living out the greatest commandment love your neighbor love your God 
Um, if we are defined by our hatred rather than our love, something's very wrong, right? Okay. Um, yes, Kate, and then we'll go on. I think, too, that we, we, have, we have decisions to make, you know, every minute through the day, every time you're around somebody else. Yeah. There's just, every, you know, one after another, the little decisions that you make that they're not momentous. Yeah. But, you know, you can decide if somebody goes past you and steps on your foot. Yeah, punching the face. Right. They can say, oh, yeah. And it tends to come for anything else that happens. I know. Um, so, you know, yeah. Yeah, we're, we're in this grace based parenting class that Dan leads. And it, yeah, it's, if, if one of my daughters, um, you know, hits her sister, um, what's my move? Right? Like, do I, do I come down and, like, focus on the behavior? Do I focus on the heart? Do I show grace? Do we issue consequences? It's those kind. I mean, and in, in the same way, like the point in the sermon today about lawsuits, I know people fighting pretty serious major lawsuits to think of them just being like, you know what? I'm going to fire my lawyer. I'm just going to let whatever. I'm not even going to try to defend myself. I'm just going to let whatever happens, happens. That is a shocking thing to think about, right? Um, and yet that is, that is literally what Jesus did. Okay, he was asked repeatedly on the night of his crucifixion, aren't you even going to try to defend himself? And he remained silent. Okay? I mean, those are, these, are crazy, these are crazy principles to suggest. And yet, if we're going to take our theology seriously and look at what the Bible says, then, you know, then it, it has a real impact. Okay, let's go to statement two, and feel free to rearrange yourselves. Jesus is God's son, and born-again believers are God's children. That means we are God's begotten children like Jesus. Mine says disagree. Yeah, where are you going to go? Where are you going to go? Most of you are still in the Okay, why would we agree or disagree with this one? You're in the middle. You'll notice I intentionally do not have a neutral category. I did not give you that option, but that's okay. Okay, um, Boger, why are you, why, why would someone be in the middle? He's on the line. Yeah, he's right on the left. Yeah, what do you think? I guess someone would be in the middle because we are considered, we got children. Mm-hmm. And Jesus is the Son. Mm-hmm. Yeah. John 3.16 says, God's only begotten Son. But there's also a lot of language in the Bible about how we are children of God. What do you think about this, Ben? I think, you know, one of the points you made earlier was that there's a unity of substance between Jesus and the Father. Yeah. And frankly, the Spirit, you know, himself. Yeah. And, and so I just, I take to heart the notion that we're God's children. God created all things, including me. Yeah. And yet, at the same time, I would never say that like I'm of the same substance as the Trinity. Yeah. True. And that's like. It feels like it's going a little far. That's just like way too far. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Any other thoughts on this one? Yes, Maria. Um, God created us. Mm-hmm. God created us. All of you created all of us. Yes. Now. Because we sin, when Adam and Eve sin, Adam sin, God got mad. Okay. And he said, This, this. Yeah. But since he created us, he doesn't want for us to go to zero. Mm-hmm. So he said, Jesus, who is part of us and part of him, mm-hmm. to come and show us how to live. Yeah. That's right. Well, and Jesus is often compared, he's described as like a bridge, right? Okay. My girls love Frozen 2, the movie Frozen 2. In Frozen 2, Elsa becomes this bridge between the spirit world with all of these powers and the human world. Okay. And you find these themes in so many stories. Okay. Um, we, you know, in the book, the Harry Potter books, they're trying to find a sorcerer's stone, which makes you live forever. Okay. These these desires, these concepts are in so many of our stories. And it's, it's as you say, Malia, it's, it's because we were created for eternity. Okay, even when God created Adam and Eve, they were meant to live forever. 
Okay? But then, because of sin, we have consigned ourselves to this mortal life, um, to this world where things do decay and rot and decline. And yet, it's like Jesus is this elixir of life. He, he is the fountain of you. He has come so that he can help us rejoin this infinite, eternal realm. Okay? And become children of God. So, yeah, I, I was studying this question myself, and I was like, I don't actually even know where I would fall on this, even though I'm teaching the class, because he talks about how when we get Zoe, we get part of this begotten life that is put into us, but I still wouldn't call myself a begotten child of God. So, okay, let's keep going unless there's any other burning questions or statements. Okay, statement three. The Christian Trinity describes a God which is not impersonal but super personal. What do you think about this one? Someone who can relate to us in more way, more than a person. Okay, we're back to universal agreement. Okay. Um, but feel free to speak to this one um, on the level of is God personal or impersonal? Is the force behind the universe? A super personal God, where it's multiple persons that interacts with us in multiple ways, or is it just kind of a, a benevolent force outside the universe? I guess most of us probably think it's a trying God. Yeah. Before I was born again, yeah, God was way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I believed He existed. Yeah, and I knew that. The church taught that Jesus died for our sins, but it hadn't become real. Yeah. Until I had problems in my life, and due to different circumstances, I started reading John. Hmm. And then reality hit. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. I love hearing people's stories that I came to know God. Yeah. It is, I think, tempting to think of God as a distant, benevolent force because it means there's no accountability. It means that, um, you know, we sort of imagine that God is looking at us from a distance and that, you know, if our life were to be shaded mostly green or mostly red in terms of our good behavior, he'd probably give us a pass. You know, he doesn't doesn't really care that much. Christine says, he's infinite. He, he knows the hairs on your head. He created you. He is very personal. Not only is he personal with you, he's actually multiple persons. And he has all the time in eternity to give to you. To see you. Bogart. In the past, in the Catholic Church, the Mass was in Latin. Yeah. And the priest would turn his back to yeah. the people. Yeah. And he was the only one reading so it would be like an spectator. Yeah. And you could not feel this person. Yeah. Uh, something that helped me to understand that God is very personal when Jesus died and the, the, the curtain was That's torn. Right. Yeah. The separation between the holy to the most holy place. Yeah. Uh, meaning that we have access. We have access to. Yeah. Yeah, in the in the Old Testament, one of the first times that God really interacts with His people is on the mountain of Sinai, and it's thunder and lightning and darkness, and 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 Moses is given instructions: don't even let the people touch the mountain, or they're going to die. And Moses is the only one that gets to go up to the top of the mountain to talk to the God. And all the people say, "We don't want to hear God's voice; it's too scary." Moses, you have to be the mediator. Okay? And in the ancient, you know, in the old temple, in the, in the old um, uh, tabernacle, there was the outer court. I think the men were allowed in the outer court. And then there was the inner court, which was where the priests were allowed. And then there was the holiest of holies, where only, only the high priest was allowed once a year. And if you disobeyed the rules at all, God was going to strike you down dead. Okay? So this indicates the kind of superior power and holiness that God has. We have no right whatsoever to approach that God. And yet, what did Jesus do? The veil was torn on the, in, so when, on the night that Jesus died, the afternoon that Jesus died, there was an earthquake. Um, 
there were people that rose out of the graves. It was like a little zombie apocalypse for a second, okay? And the veil that separated the holy from the holiest of holies was ripped, implying that we, from the top, oh, I love that detail, from the top down, okay? Indicating that we now could have access to this powerful God, okay? Um, how amazing. Kate? I think so many of the, of the theologies, if you will, yeah. previously or even now, but, you know, like the Greeks, the Greek gods were basically, they didn't care about humans at all, except yeah. they just they tricks on them. Oh, yeah, or to have sex with them. For their own amusement. Yeah. And before that, they were, you know, the gods were just scary. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. There was no nothing you could do except try to placate them somehow. That's right. Yeah. I mean, worldwide cultures, we've tried to understand. It's that question: How can we have this beautiful world in which we know that there must be meaning, and yet so many things seem meaningless and hard and tragic? And the common explanation was to have a pantheon of gods who were squabbling and imperfect and. Sometimes we're in the mood to smite you, and sometimes we're in the mood to bless you. Um, Christianity has a very different theology, a very different understanding of it. Okay, let's get to a few more, uh, maybe one more. Let's, um, we talked about this a fair amount. I'm going to, I think we've got time for one more. Let's get into this one, statement five. I suspect God is too busy to listen to every one of my prayers. Okay, there's a little more there's a little more disagreement here, which I think is helpful helpful because I think this is something that a lot of us do emotionally maybe struggle with. Why would someone disagree? Why would someone agree? I think God might be too busy to answer my prayers. Because God loves me. I, he's going to listen to anything I have to say. God loves you, he will listen to whatever you have to say. Yeah. Yeah? Sunny? Because of the immediate result, it's not happening. Ah, yeah. Yeah, we don't, our prayers don't feel like they're answered. And so maybe God is just too busy for me. Okay, that's honest. Thank you. Why else would someone agree or disagree with this? Kathy? I would say he agreed because he's outside of time. It's not like he's having like a giant to-do list of like, I have to get like a million things done before I'm supposed to be happy. Yeah. 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 He he is infinite. He has he has infinite attention for us. Something that I sometimes think about is um, I kind of think that I have like these sort of invisible angels around me, kind of like constantly checking in with God, like, hey. God, is it cool if we give Greta this good parking spot? That's not going to mess up your eternal cosmic plan. Great. Okay, we're going to we're going to do that for Greta. Or like, hey, can we can we make this arrangement over here? Can we let this work out? Oh no. Okay. All right. We're going to like I imagine that this all this coordination is happening all the time because it's still hard for me to imagine that God actually has the like that He has the capacity to kind of do that cosmic orchestration for for all of us. But He's infinite. He's infinite. Yeah, Courtney. I think I. I kind of fall into this um, way of thinking that God's not too busy for me, but the, the prayers that I have for a parking spot or whatever it is are not worthy of talking to him. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I think a lot of us have, have that idea. I think I, um, I've also heard people say that I don't feel like God will hear my prayers because I'm such a sinner. People say, like, I think my, I mean, my own dad has told me this, but I think God listens to your prayers. So I always want you to pray for me, but I, I don't know if God listens to my prayers because of what I've done. Um, God, is, God is infinite, right? If God can bless, um, I mean, again, I think of this t-shirt story, right? What is more inconsequential than what shirt you put on your body and yet God can bless that, okay? 
I remember I shared um, the story of when Jeff and I were dating and we were struggling to, to hold our the boundary that we'd set ourselves in terms of how far we could go, right? And, we, and so we started praying while we were making out. <laughs> Seriously, like, which was ridiculous, okay? But, but God, like God entered in somehow, okay? It was really, it was still technically unsuccessful, right? Like we didn't, we didn't do, you know, we still kind of crossed the line. But, um, but God ended up teaching us something that we were not even expecting to learn about what it meant to be truly like close and connected to each other. We began to realize when we were using each other for some sort of gratification versus when we were, when we, when we were celebrating this beautiful relationship that God had given us and using this experience to be close. Okay? So God can enter into anything. If it matters to us, you've got to believe it matters to God. Okay? And I think he can teach us through something even as inconsequential as a parking spot or something. Yeah, Kate. Yeah, just, um, thinking about something still too, uh, too selfish. Ah. You're praying for it's like, that's not really worthy because it's mm. what you want for it. Yeah, yeah. It's not for what somebody else needs. Mm. So, yeah. But then, you know what I love? You look at the Psalms, and David is like, would you kill that guy? Would you make him suffer? In fact, would you make his children suffer? And it's like, whoa, okay? If David, like, but do you know what was happening to David's soul? Well, that was, he was in dialogue with God. Like, God had, like, like God had an opening to respond, right? So, I... Um, I shared with um, Susie and some friends the other night that I prayed a couple of embarrassing prayers every day when I was in sophomore year. I'm not going to tell you one of them because one was really embarrassing. But one of them was like, can, can, can Colin Warren please be my boyfriend? I really want Colin Warren to be my boyfriend. Like, well, finally, Colin Warren was my boyfriend for two weeks. <laughs> Didn't work out. And, and you know, when, it, when we broke up, it was almost like God was like, Prada, do you see why I was saying that all year? Like, do you get it now? And so I think, you know, even, even if we come to him with selfish, stupid prayers, he has the opportunity to minister to our souls in that. I think, I think he is happy. I think he's so delighted when we come to him for any reason at all. Scripture says pray continuously. It doesn't say pray with the right motives all the time. It says pray. Pray all the time. Just pray all the time. Let's see what God does. Okay, we are at the past time. So let me pray to close us. Um, Lord God, you are such a good God. It is amazing to think what you did for us in, in, in coming to earth as Jesus, in dying on the cross, and atoning for our sins, and making this relationship possible, in adopting us as your children and giving us your own life. Thank you, Lord. Would you help us to live in thanks to you? Would you help us to praise you with our lives, um, to live with love, uh, and to show others um, who you are with our love? Uh, and to live out the kind of radical obedience that you that you call us to. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay. Thanks for coming, you guys. We've got two more weeks of this.